Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Glad to welcome Jeff Rasley a former attorney who is both an author and a public speaker. Jeff will be speaking to us today from Indianapolis, Indiana. Jeff has many gifts. He is a BA from the University of Chicago, magna cum laude, a Phi Beta Kappa, and an all-academic, all-state football letter winner in swimming and football. He earned his JD from Indiana University Law School cum laude, and has been admitted to the Indiana U.S. District and U.S. Supreme Court bars. And Jeff could also be a poster child for rebirth. He built a successful career in law and business and was a millionaire by the time he was 40. And he was also a very involved husband and father to his two children. Life was great and the sports car and the Harley were fun. But in his mid-40s, Jeff began to manifest midlife symptoms. He seemed to need something beyond family, life, career, and financial good fortune. His wife's answer to, is that all there is, was to suggest that Jeff go trekking in the Himalayas and reconnect with his adventurous and more spiritual side that he had lost in the pursuit of success. That trek transformed Jeff's life. I'm looking forward to talking with Jeff about the ways his pursuit of success transformed into a more spiritual and meditative approach to life, his travel experiences from a spiritual perspective, what Jeff calls his philanthrotrex, the creation of the Bassam Village Foundation, and two of his 11 books titled You Have to Get Lost Before You Can Be Found, a memoir of suffering, grit, and love of the Himalayas and Bassam Village, and Island Adventures, Disconnecting in the Caribbean and South Pacific. This is sure to be a fascinating and inspiring story of healing and rebirth. Hi, Jeff. A warm welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Hello. Namaste, Irene. Namaste to you, too. This is going to be a pleasure. We're going to have a great time. You're such an interesting guy. Um. Let's start by um, letting everyone know who you were before all these transitions took place in your life. So in your early years, you were an avid adventure traveler. And please also describe your spiritual side when you were growing up and share what drew you to business and law as a career. Well, I grew up in a small town in Northern Indiana, Goshen, Indiana, which is not so small anymore. But when I was growing up, uh, there were about 
10,000 people in the city and it was small enough that most everybody knew each other and my family had been there for five generations an early pioneer family so we really knew everybody in the community and um, like most of my friends I grew up in a church happened to be the Presbyterian church and uh, sitting in the family pew with four generations because wow. my great grandmother lived to be 98. Um, it had a, a, a very, I think, powerful, influential impact in terms of integrating into my value system the sort of, you know, the, the golden rule that at least at my church, uh, Christianity promoted of, uh, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you have them do unto you. And so, um, although eventually the, the sort of the dogma and theology of the church I left behind, I think that value system stayed with me. And so by the time I was a senior in high school, uh, I was helping to organize the first Walk for Hunger in Goshen. And, um, you know, that was kind of, I guess I would say my first really major effort at philanthropy, which means love of humanity. And so, um, you know, that was kind of the, the springboard to many other philanthropic projects that I've been involved with over time. And what drew you into business and law as a career? Since you, and you were and you liked adventure travel too, didn't you? Like were you doing? Oh uh, yeah, did? yeah. I I dropped out of college um, after one semester and hitchhiked across the country. Uh, now wait, which, I have to ask you, how'd your family feel about that one? Well, my mom um, drove me to the edge of town, and I think she had tears in her eyes as she saw me standing by State Road 15 <laughs> uh, uh, on the south side of Goshen with my backpack and my thumb out. But uh, she also knew that I was the sort of kid that was not to be stopped once I had set my mind on something. And um, so not very happy about it, but, you know, uh, I wanted to get out of our small town and see the world. And I thought the most interesting way to do it would be to hitchhike. So that's what I did. It's wonderful that she let you go that way. That, there was a lot of parents wouldn't do that. I think that was great. And uh, as you were growing up, so we understand your commitment to social activism and philanthropy when you're in high school and it carried through in college. And what got you to choose business and law? Well, my, <laughs> I think my parents would say it was because I always enjoyed arguing. Um, so they, I mean, really from an early age, there was an expectation that I would uh, become a lawyer. Um, I, I just, I like debate. I like public speaking. I like theater. I had um, had the lead in our junior class play. And then as a, a freshman in college, I had the lead in an, another play. And so I was kind of drawn to performance. And so I thought being a trial lawyer would be really cool and would be something that I could like do that sort of performative 
argumentative um, aspect of my personality that I enjoy, but at the same time could represent people that needed help. So uh, yeah, you were getting in, talking about you were you were acting in high school and all. You were also helping other people in their family dramas and their life dramas, weren't you? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So, but when I started out, uh, when I first graduated from law school, I went to work for a legal services organization, which is a poverty law and uh, social justice um, nonprofit organization, and. Um, you know, that's really sort of was how I wanted to create a, a legal career initially, um, do that kind of work. But after a few years, um, I went to the dark side and left, <laughs> left legal services organization and joined uh, as a young associate, a large corporate firm in downtown Indianapolis. And um sort of learned the business side of law there, but woke up most mornings feeling almost sick to my stomach. Um, I mean, literally nauseous about going into the office because it was just such a toxic environment where people were constantly <laughs> writing what we called CYA, cover your ass memos. And it, it, you know, it was all about um, making money for the firm and not getting into trouble. And it was just this very sort of constricted, uh, icky approach uh, to being a lawyer. So actually with, it's a life in a way, because a lot of that's still going on to this day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, two of my best friends left the firm, started their own firm and, and I joined them uh, after they had kind of got the little firm uh, established and going. And the three of us uh, had a really a delightful time um, trying to create a business, but also to try to do it in a, in a more virtuous way where we, you know, put the clients first and making money second, um, mainly because we were just desperate to get any clients. But um, it succeeded, and after a while, um, my two partners left to join another kind of uh, middle-sized firm that wanted to become a big firm, and I just did not want to go through that again, and so went through a series of, uh, you know, joining with other friends, and eventually was the senior, senior partner in a small firm that was successful. And um, so, you know, uh, as you described, I hit uh, 40 and had sort of this midlife crisis of having concentrated for so many years on building this business, the law firm, but also building a family because two kids had come along and the adventuresome side of my personality had, had really been ignored uh, for too long and was screaming <laughs> to get out, which my, my wife recognized uh, in the, the symptoms of a midlife crisis. So I came home from the office one day and 
she slapped down on the dining room table in front of me a brochure about trekking the um, the Mount Everest base camp trail and said, why don't you go do this? Wow, what a good woman you have there. Yeah. You really do. She really cared about you. And she was what she she also wasn't was very okay with letting you go to do what you needed to do. Like your mom had let you go. That was like a little, you know, wonderful that she did that. And I'll hold down the fort, you go figure it out. That's terrific. Um uh what and who inspired you to return to the Himalayan region 14 times after that first trek and what about you changed when you adopted that more spiritual and meditative approach to life tell us about that first trip and how it changed you well the way it changed me is uh to experience this very different culture in nepal and to see the the most magnificent mountains in the world uh so there was this, this kind of twofold uh, pull. I, I was really impressed and moved by um, how Sir Edmund Hillary described the Sherpa people and really all the, the different tribal ethnic groups that live up in the high Himalayas as the kindest and strongest people in the world. And I found that to be absolutely true. Um, the people living in these small villages and as uh, solitary yak herders were just amazingly strong, tough, but also had a wonderful welcoming attitude towards strangers. Wow. And so, you know, live uh, in their traditional cultures, live by the ethic of a stranger is a welcome guest in their village. And uh, I just, I, I found this really attractive. And so I wanted to go back. And uh, I also wanted to become a climber, uh, a mountaineer, not just a trekker. Uh, I thought it would be, you know, more exciting and adventuresome to get up and actually climb those big peaks. Uh, rather than just fellow, aren't around. you? <laughs> Yeah. 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 Guy. <laughs> well and in indiana there's not exactly a lot of mountains to climb so that was just uh you know that was one of uh several different kind of adventure travel um methods that uh i've had that i've experimented with but so i i took some courses on um climbing and went back and started you know, joining my mountaineering groups and, and did a number of uh, mountain climbs and over time eventually was leading treks and climbing expeditions and then eventually developed this foundation, the Basa Village Foundation to try to give back to um, these wonderful, kind and strong people that had become my friends. Now, how did your, would you say this is what constituted your more spiritual and meditative approach to life? I mean, did you just completely quit working and this is what, this you adopted this whole, this whole new attitude? You were out of the rat race? Well, no, it took a while um, because the first time I went to Nepal was in 1995 and I continued 
um, practicing law until 2010. Um, so for quite a while there, I was going off to Nepal uh, about every other year for a while um, and just leaving home and practice behind for about uh, three to four weeks. Um, but as, as I was doing that, you know, I started writing articles about it. And because as you know, as you, you mentioned kind of this spiritual uh, awakening or reawakening that I was having was because these people that I was spending time with over there and getting to know um, had just a much more grounded approach to life uh, than most Americans, at least living the Americans living in the kind of executive professional class that was my social milieu back in so Indiana. Can you, like, can you kind of describe what you would call a grounded way of life? Y yeah. Um, so the people that eventually I became the closest to are called the Rye people, uh, which, and they live in the Himalayas just below where the Sherpas live. Um, and there's a lot of interaction between those two uh, ethnic tribal groups, but the Sherpas are Buddhists. The Rai people are what we would call animists, that they don't have a formal religion. They have an approach to life. They think there is spirit uh, or soul in everything, uh, not just living things, but even in rocks and mountains and and so um, they have this really deep respect to the natural, for the natural world and with re respect to the natural world because it has spirit or soul just like living things do. And um, so there's this sort of super environmentalist attitude of care for nature, but that extends towards other people. And, um, so this, the, you know, the, the ethic that I grew up with, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, I was experiencing people actually living that, which <laughs> most um, Christians do not. Uh, I mean, we don't, we, we in, in big cities, you know, we're afraid of other people. We keep our right. doors locked. Right. Um, we keep our car doors locked. We go around many people carrying guns for protection. And so there's this very guardedness. Whereas there uh, with, with these, these people, the rye, the Sherpas, um, you know, they don't lock their doors. Um, some houses don't even have doors. Um, there's just this very sense of welcoming and openness um, and so that, you know, that was part of it. And then the other part of it was just um, kind of a reacquainting with very simple things in life. Uh, when you're trekking or climbing, you know, what you're focusing on is just, is the natural world around you and taking the next step as opposed, so, you know, having this very sort of simple grounded way of living for a period of time as opposed to having 150 law cases that you know my mind is constantly whirling around uh, making sure I don't miss a deadline trying to accomplish the goals my 
clients have for me. And so it was a very interesting contrast um, there for quite a few years. And, and eventually, because I was, you know, thankfully uh, financially successful, I finally, when my kids were off to college, um, I let go of practicing law. You were able to follow your heart and soul to do what you want needed to do. So tell us about these philanthropic treks. Do you go with a groups of people and they, they combine visiting Nepal with culturally sensitive development work and it led to the creation of Basa Village Foundation. So could you tell us about that part of your journey? Yeah, when um, after I'd been there and the, Nepal is the poorest country outside of Africa. There's a handful of countries in Africa that you know have a lower standard of living and lower life expectancy and sort of all the measurable ways that you define poverty. Nepal is near the very bottom wow. of that list. So, and the people that go over on tracks or mountaineering experience almost always come leave feeling this, this desire to give back. Uh, because they had this wonderful experience of these wonderful, open, friendly people that, you, you know, you, you just come away wanting to give back. So the first few times I went back, I would do um, little fundraisers, um, mostly through my church at the time. And I would raise a couple thousand dollars. Um, buy school supplies, uh, take uh, clothes and stuff like that, and then give some money to uh, a charitable foundation that I had connected with over there. But eventually I decided that I wanted to, to start my own and uh, you know, not just be giving money to other people depending on them. And so out of you know, beginning to lead uh, treks and expeditions, I developed this uh, network of like-minded people. And so we decided that we would start the Basa Foundation uh, because um, I had connected with this one little village through the trekking company that I was employing. Um, and the owner of the trekking company, whose name is Nuru Rai, had grown up in Basa Village. And when he was 14, he left home, hired on as a porter with a trekking company, and eventually moved up through the ranks and then started his own trekking company um, called Adventure Geotreks. And, but he um, kept hiring as porters and guides and cooks people from his home village of Basa. And so I spent, you know, weeks <laughs> with these people from Basa as my porters and guides uh, and cooks and got to be very close with them. And we got back to Kathmandu after the first um, uh, expedition I had done with Adventure Geotrex and uh, Nuru and the, our chief guide, uh, whose name was um, Ganas Rai, that's all the right people, their last name is Rai. Um, they told me that in their village, Abasa, was a school that had three grades 
And they really wanted to add a fourth and a fifth grade uh, and hire a fourth and a fifth grade teacher. And would I consider raising $5,000, which would pay to add the two classrooms and would pay two teachers salaries for three years. And wow. I thought, you know, $5,000 to give, you know, two more grades of education to the village kids, of course. So I did, and that was in 2006. So in 2007, um, raised the money, and then organized a, a trekking group to go visit Basa, which was the first time I was in Basa, and um, saw the school and met all the villagers who were waiting for us and literally covered us in flowers wow. when we arrived at the village. And um, it was such a wonderful, inspiring experience. I, I wrote uh, the first book, um, that I've written about adventures in Nepal and how I sort of transitioned from a lawyer to an adventure mountain climber to philanthropist through with the Basa Foundation. It's very inspiring. And you've written 11 books, you've been busy. Um, I wanna ask you about one of your books, your ninth one titled Island Adventures, Disconnecting in the Caribbean and South Pacific. It's an anthology of adventures on islands across the world. Please share some of the spiritual awakenings and adventures you've personally experienced and describe how you became lost and alone in a kayak at sea at night and explain what sustained you during that frightening time. I wouldn't have been such a good candidate for that experience. I can tell you right now. <laughs> how, what, tell us about that. That's amazing. Well, in 2000, SARS uh, struck and um, people were not traveling uh, to Nepal. They, they, we were sort of, you know, told not to go to South Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries. So I uh, took a break from going to Nepal. Plus uh, in 1999, I had a very um, difficult experience there because three people died uh, on our way out from a climbing expedition. Oh my. And um, so instead of, of, of doing mountaineering, I did uh, solo sea kayaking adventures. And I was in uh, a little country, little island nation called Palau. And I was kayaking from island to island and I got lost <laughs> because uh, in Palau, there's this area called the Rock Islands. And there are literally thousands of little tiny islands. And as it was getting dark, I, I had not calculated correctly how long it would take to get to the next island where I could set up a campsite. Because you can't camp on these little tiny rock islands. And because it was dark and there were all these little islands, I got confused in my navigating and I missed the island where I had planned to be able to camp that night. I mean, nice. I had a map and so I, I thought I knew where I was going, but anyway. So you didn't realize you had missed it yet. No. And <laughs> so I kept 
paddling and paddling and I think this is taking way too long you know I I should have been there by really right before sundown and now sun's down it's getting darker and darker and um, eventually uh, I see this white spot uh, up on because I'm going along this island this big island but it ha has a sheer cliff and then a mangrove jungle. And so there's no way that I can even pull my kayak up, let alone try to camp. But I see this white spot in the distance on the, on the side of the island. So I paddle and I get there and it's a, it's a half sunken uh, boat hmm. and there's a little spit of sand by it. And so I think maybe I could camp here but I calculate, because I have a tide chart and I, I calculate how much space there is. And I realize that by the time the tide is all the way in and is starting to come in, that little sand spit would be underwater. And so I thought about tying the kayak to one of the mangrove uh, trees and just trying to ride it out, decided that would be too dangerous, fall asleep, get tipped over by a wave. Um, so I decide I must have just missed the turn and I need to paddle back, but I have now been paddling um, for 10 hours. Oh my God, you must have been exhausted. Well, yeah, I was exhausted. And I thought by what my best calculation was, it was gonna be two more hours to paddle back, to retrace um, my steps, uh, to get back to where I missed the turn. And uh, I thought, you know, this is really just not possible. I just don't have the stamina to do that. But on the other hand, what choice do I have? So I, you know, I push the kayak back in the water, jump in, start paddling. And within just a few minutes, I'm back out in the open sea and some very large uh, creature starts bumping the bottom of my kayak. Oh my God. <laughs> and there's there's a lot of sharks in this area. So I figured this is probably a shark and this is not a good thing. And I can barely see the side of the island, but I've got a paddle, you know, keeping the side of the island within sight, but not getting too far out. And there's a reef. Someone's dinner. <laughs> yeah, and, and I have to avoid the reef. So it's you know it's really pretty dicey paddling, um, and all of a sudden I just had this moment of uh, utter relaxation, and um, I just knew that I had the strength that I needed to keep paddling. And I had started um, chanting and I was chanting out loud uh, the mantra that is very popular in Nepal, Om Mani Padme Hum, which is a Buddhist chant. Right. But I intermixed with it uh, different um, Christian hymns that I grew Whoever up. Whoever was listening, you would like some help, please. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm sort of, I'm chanting and, and singing this mixture of uh, Buddhist mantras and Christian hymns and something happened. And so 
I paddled on. I felt as if I had just gotten up. I didn't feel tired at all. And as I rounded this point where the island forms like a, a V like this. And so I was out here and I came around and as I came in and the campsite is down here. As I came around that finger, the, the sky had been completely black. It was completely covered in clouds. There was, I knew there was a full moon, but you couldn't even see it because the clouds were so thick. As I rounded that point, clouds opened up, full moon came out, lit up this, um, this bay and, and the water was just this beautiful green lit up by the moon and the mangrove jungle on both sides. And it just made this beautiful, peaceful, because out in the open uh, side of the island, it was very wavy and current. And then I came here and the bay was perfectly glassy, placid. And so then I paddled for another um, 20 minutes or so around through down that bay uh, and found, the dock where I was going to camp and uh, that opening up it was like that curtain was drawn from this very dangerous place to this utterly peaceful hopeful place and so I set my tent up on the dock and the, the the last bit of the story is during the night a blizzard oh my <laughs> blew up and have, having gone through the, you know, feeling like I might die to this is the, just this wonderful, beautiful spiritual experience to I'm now li- lying on the tent, uh, spread eagle with my hands and my feet holding the tent down so that it won't be blown off into the water, lashed with rain. And then the storm passed and in the morning the sun was out and it was a beautiful time to take my clothes off and jump in the ocean and skinny dip because wow. nobody else was around. Wow, what an, what an adventure. And what a, what a reason to be grateful for being alive. Yeah, Definitely so that's sort like of the heart of that, a little that bit island of adventure. Session. Yeah, wow. And then in your 10th book, which is titled, You Have to Get Lost Before You Can Be Found, memoir of suffering, grit, and love of the Himalayas and Basa village. You also had some harrowing adventures. So could you share a few of them with us and explain what inspired you um, during that cultural, well, I guess we've talked about what's inspired you to transition from an adventurer to a committed philanthropist during that time, but would you like to share some of your adventures? Yeah, the one that was really the, the most moving um, happened in 1999, which was, you know, just before I had that kayaking adventure. Um, I was with a mountaineering group and uh, I was not the leader of the, this group. Um, my friend Tom Proctor was the leader along with our Sirdar, which means your chief mountain guide, uh, Seth. And um, so we had gone to the, had trekked, had a very difficult trek because the weather was absolutely terrible. It was a combination of rain and snow every day. And, but we got to the mountain uh, called Mira Peak and we got 
high up on the mountain, but nobody in our group, nobody in any of the other groups could summit because the the weather was so terrible, just blizzard up on the mountain. And the snow had built really, really deep. And so finally we just, you know, we gave up and we're hiking out. And um, with a trail out from base camp, uh, the, the snow had built up uh, hip deep. And I'm, I'm six foot tall. And so hip deep on me is pretty deep snow. And for the, the, the Nepali guys who are mostly about five foot four, it's waist deep. And so we're, you know, struggling through this snow, this deep snow, and we get to this high uh, mountain pass called the Zatra La, which is a very steep, difficult um, pass to hike up and over. And it's sort of the, the most difficult um, high pass between Mira Peak and Lukla Village, which is where you go to fly uh, in and out of the high country. And um, so we're at the Zatra La, and there we look up and um, we see three Nepali porters who are up on this higher uh, point in the mountain where there's a shortcut trail. And uh, they had taken the shortcut, which is more dangerous because they were trying to uh, get back to Lukla before their clients were, uh, so that they'd have all their gear there waiting for them. Um, and there had been avalanches all, all the time that we were up in the mountains. And so this was about week number three that we'd been out there. And we hear the roar of an avalanche and Seth um, yells, you know, run, just run. So our group, um, which was four climbers plus Seth, because our, our crew of uh, porters and were behind us. And so we start running down the Satrala, which is a boulder field and, you know, banging our shins on boulders, but just running For your lives. <laughs> yeah. But we get down to the bottom and we're fine. The avalanche had petered out and we just got kind of covered with what's called spin drift, just sort of the remains of the avalanche after it's blown out. And we look up and the, the three uh, Nepali porters are gone. Uh-oh. And uh, we learned later, I mean, we, we were worried about them, but we learned later they were killed. And our, the rest of our guys um, were cut off because uh, the avalanche, they weren't hurt, but they were trapped. And so Seth told us to hike on because um, Tom knew the way back to Lukla village. And so we hiked on and um, Seth went back and made his way back up the Zatra Law, ended up having to carry um, one of the porters down because he did, he did get hurt. And uh, there were th three rivers you have to cross from Zatrala to Lukla. And as we crossed them, they were getting higher and higher. But by the time Seth and the rest of the crew behind us got there, the rivers had gotten neck high and they couldn't get across. They actually crossed the first two and were completely soaked. 
with the third one, they had to just camp out um, by on the riverbank. And by then we were back in Lukla in, in a Probably lodge. very worried about all of them. <laughs> very worried. Uh, we were wait, staying up all night, waiting, hoping to see them come in and they didn't. So we started hiking back the next morning to see if we could find them. And then we heard Seth whistling and he's coming down the trail, helping one of the porters who'd hurt his leg, carrying his big backpack, Seth's backpack in the front, the porter's doko basket on his back. And he had climbed up and down the Zatra Law three more times to bring all the stuff down. And then had been all of them soaking wet, camp, you know, sleeping out that night, uh, freezing. And he came in whistling that's because amazing. that's just all in a day's work to him. Wow. Wow. What truly beautiful people. Wow. Um, so one minute you were in a tent in the Himalayas and going through all this. And then not long after in a car in the middle of Indianapolis, that must have been a real culture shock for you. So would you like to articulate what it meant for you to fly across the world to find these beautiful people and a greater clarity of purpose um, than what you had? What, what, um, what did that do? I mean, it changed your life. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it redirected it in a way because um, wanting to create a foundation to really give back to these people, and in particular, the Rye people of Basa Village, um, who I'd become so close to, uh, I, you know, started spending more and more time doing that foundation work and less and less time practicing law. And thankfully, I had a younger partner um, who had a, a buyout agreement in the partnership that we eventually executed. And so relieved me of uh, the burdens of law practice so I could devote more time to the foundation and to writing. Yeah, um, heart and soul. Yeah, and I, uh, over the years, I've been on probably 12 different nonprofit boards and currently on uh, five or six also. So I, you know, try to do other things here locally. Um, to help my own local community as well as the community of Basa. That's fantastic. Do people in your local community ever go philanthropy trekking with you? I yeah. Know you recommend it as a way to deal with the midlife crisis. Have you, has, has your passion for that put on to others? Yeah. Um, you know, in Indianapolis, uh, the first time I went trekking, <laughs> there were two people in the entire state of Indiana that were members of the American Mountaineering Association, uh, which was Tom, my buddy, uh, who was in Terre Haute, and me. Uh, and since then, there's probably at least uh, 60 or more people here in the Indianapolis area that have gone to Nepal, either with me or in uh, other groups that I've helped organize. Um, and, you know, others in the Midwest, there's a group from California, Seattle, uh, Baltimore, Baltimore and Washington DC area, uh, because, you, you know, I mean, you know how networks work. 
uh, I mean, you know that very well, that once somebody else, you know, kind of enters your network, then they bring their network into it. And uh, so there's now two other members of our BASA Foundation that are regularly leading tracks, although, you know, everything came to a stop because of COVID and Nepal is still suffering badly from COVID. Wow. So, uh, you know, we're not sending people over and hopefully this coming year we can start up again, but it's now been almost three years. Right. And now with all the suffering, they need you more than ever, I'm sure. Yeah, they do. I mean, the foundation during COVID, we managed to finish uh, a project we have to bring a medical clinic um, to the area. And we just um, a couple weeks ago finished creating a playground uh, for the school, which yeah. because there's a 500 foot drop off <laughs> right, right beside the school, uh, eventually uh, the teachers and local people thought it would be nice to build a ball so they would quit losing the soccer idea. balls we send over there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a very good idea. Now And now am I right? That, and then you had, and they added those other two class, uh, those other two grades. Um, yes, they did. They that had back. even more kids using that playground. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So there, there was about um, two hundred kids in the school, and okay. uh, grades one through five. Um, yeah. That's wonderful. So now that everyone knows what interesting, exciting books you write, write and what a fascinating life you've led. How can members of our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience connect with you and purchase all those wonderful books of yours? Well, thanks, Irene, to let me give a, a marketing plug here. Please, that's um, exactly what this is about. So go for it. <laughs> I, I have a website, which is my full name, jeffreyresley.com. R-A-S-L-E-Y, right? R-A-S-L-E-Y. Correct. And or if you just Google my name, you'll you'll find it. Uh, and I have an author site on Amazon, which lists all my books. I'm actually just last week published number 13. Oh, wow. So since we first connected and this year has been my most prolific year, I think because of the pandemic, I've managed to get out two books in one year. Would you like to tell us something about them? Yeah, the second to last one is called America's Existential Crisis, Our Inherited Obligation to the Native Nations. And it was inspired by uh, my visit to Wounded Knee um, in the Pine Ridge Reservation. And I was shocked to see the level of poverty there, which in some ways is even worse than in Nepal because it's in contrast to the, you know, the wealth to of the America. Opulence. That's right. Yes. Around it. And uh, anyway, so that inspired this book. And it's, uh, it, it, it starts out with the story of two of my ancestors. One was an Indian fighter who was at the massacre of Wounded Knee. Uh, he was a lieutenant in the 7th Cavalry. And my other ancestor was given a beautiful beaded vest by the Potawatomi 
of uh, Northern Indiana because he was such a good friend and helped them through uh, avoid starvation uh, during one very hard winter. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you know about these two ancestors? I have to ask that. Um, I learned about them. Um, the, the, the one that received the beaded vest, I knew just through growing up. My, he was the father of my great-grandmother. So, you know, there were five generations there that I was aware of. The other one I learned about when my mom was invited to West Point to attend his, the 100th anniversary of his graduation class. Wow. And we really didn't know much about him. Um, he died young. He died from a wound that he received the day after the Wounded Knee Massacre. And um, so she learned about him, wrote an article about him. And so I used, and then his military records were available. And so I use his account of what happened at Wounded Knee and contrast it with uh, other accounts and try to tell both sides of the Seventh Cavalry and the Sioux uh, Indian side of that story. And then I contrast his life with the life of my other ancestor who was such a good friend um, to the Potawatomi. And then that takes me into sort of the history of the very fraught relations between the United States of America and the particularly the Sioux Nation, but some of the other uh, Indian nations, and 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 I actually sort of anticipated this, you know, big controversy that's now hit the media recently about the Indian schools, the boarding schools, because I have a chapter on that too. Hmm. And then the last book, <laughs> which was just published uh, December first, is a very different <laughs> book. It's called um, A Pickleball Soap Opera, Love, Murder, and Pickleball. Okay, so tell us about pickleball. <laughs> well, pickleball has sustained me through the pandemic. <laughs> I've, I've become a regular pickleball player because we've, um, you know, we've been able to, to do that. That's been my athletic outlet during the pandemic. And I just decided to write a sort of crazy um, fictional novel about a pickleball group that gets embroiled in an international conspiracy involving CIA spies and Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and uh, how th <laughs> this group of pickleball players. Now, uh, please describe, what's a pickleball? Like a, <laughs> there's a basketball, there's a soccer ball, there's a baseball, what's a pickleball? Well, a, the ball itself is actually, it's a wiffle ball. Oh, okay. And you, you, you play with paddles, which are sort of enlarged ping pong paddles on a downsized tennis court. Okay. And it's, believe a, it or not, it's, it's America's fastest growing sport. Oh, I have to tell my grandsons about that. I have to ask them about that. <laughs> well, uh, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, we've been talking about healing and we've been talking about rebirth and all that. Um, and you so believe in giving to others. Would you like to talk about the ways that giving to others help us to begin to heal and anything else you'd like to say about the importance for people to heal? In their yeah, it, uh, although, I mean, I'm, 
intimidated isn't the right word, but I mean, you, you have, you know, I mean, you're, you're a goddess in that respect. Um, so I am a mere mortal compared to you. Oh, please. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, psychological research that proves that people feel better about themselves when they give. Um, and I think anybody that's been involved in either, you know, serving charities or even just, you know, giving to your neighbors, um, there's this sense of uh, fulfillment and a positive self-identification. You know, you think of yourself as a better person mm -hmm. when you do good deeds. And um, so I, I think, you know, that's part of it that we heal ourselves in the sense of having a more positive image of ourselves and just feeling better through philanthropy. Um, but the other piece of it is, is regardless of self, it is for the rest of humanity and nature. I mean, at this point, we need to be concerned as much, if not more, about the natural world than, than we do about our own species. Um, we can't have one without the other. And we're not treating it either very well. <laughs> right, exactly. So there's the this sort of, in a way, almost a selfish aspect to it. It serves us to serve others, but there's also just, we need to take care of our world. Uh, and our the natural world is in the most desperate uh, straits it's been since homo sapiens have been roaming it. it it makes a lot of sense when you talk about the indigenous peoples and all about how they took such good care of the natural world and then along came uh civilization should i say that was not too civilized <laughs> well well certainly industrialization and you know it's like we've got the, a tiger by the tail because industrialization gives us so much. I mean, our quality of life in terms of material, the material aspect of life is so much better. On the other hand, the cost to air, water, ground is getting to the point where is the cost worth it? We, we have to find a new balance. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Jeff. And what is the Jeff tip for finding joy in life? For finding like joy in life? Yeah, well, I, I really think we've, <laughs> we've pretty well covered it. I mean, I think, you know, just that, yeah, giving uh, of yourself to others, but also maintaining that or not forgetting that childish, adventuresome, curious aspect to our personalities and feeding that at least a little bit. That's beautiful. Well, Jeff, helping to uplift others less fortunate than you inspired you to find rebirth and live a more meaningful life. I'm really happy for you and for all of the people your life has touched. Thank you from my heart for this fascinating and uplifting interview and for your soul-stirring books that help your readers to consider how they can insert more meaning into their lives, helping them to find deeper joy. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on irenweinberg.com 
And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Thank you.